What are the behavioral norms at this company informally and formally? How do people get their work done? What are the behaviors that become champions in the organization? How do we reward those people? And what are the behaviors that we don't want to reward? And how do we discourage people from doing that? All of those small details, that is what culture is all about. Welcome to Want to Work There, a podcast that explores what really makes a company a great place to work. I'm your host, Jill Falska, and together we'll explore not only what goes into building a great company culture, but also exactly how to implement those best practices within your own workplace. If you're here, you believe that a better world of work is possible, and I can't wait to build it together. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the Want to Work There podcast. So those of you who have heard me talking about my love of books know that I have a tendency to just browse endlessly in bookstores. I end up in audible lists, like so deep, it's not even funny. And I found the two women that I am talking to today because I stumbled across their book. And I cannot tell you how quickly I fell in love with both their writing style and what they were sharing. They are the authors of a book called Remote Works, Managing for Freedom, Flexibility, and Focus. And we're going to dive into not only why they wrote their book, but talk about some of the intricacies that really go into building a really great remote culture. So Tam, Ali, welcome. So excited to have you here. Yeah. Hello. I'm Tam coming at you from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Perfect. And Allie, how about you? Where are you coming in from? Hey, everyone. Nice to join you. I'm across the pond right now, currently in France. Yes. And I will say I am actually now in Minnesota. I have relocated for five months. And I have to say this episode is basically dedicated to my cousin, Sarah, who very frantically and wonderfully got me set up in the basement of their house so that we could have this interview. So shout out to Sarah. This would not have happened without her. (laughs) All right. So let's dig in. What inspired you to write this new book? Yeah. So I did not know that remote working was an actual skill until the pandemic. So when I started working in 2006, I was a management consultant queue up in the air, but no George Clooney. I was just always going around to different sites. And that meant that I just naturally, the very first time I was in the corporate world, I never had like a home location that was permanent. I had a BlackBerry, I had IBM ThinkPad. And so it was just like naturally the way that I worked. And then that progressed over time to my job before the pandemic was at Automatic, which is WordPress, WooCommerce, Tumblr, but it was a very prominent all remote company before the pandemic. And I just thought it was the way it was. And I just really loved working in a way that I had a lot of autonomy and flexibility. I was a digital nomad at that time. And that's how I met Allie in Cape Town. We have a very cute, meet cute story. Maybe we'll get into that. But then the pandemic happened. I was at that time at a really cool creative design firm, but it was very much an in-person company. And so I had just started about six months in, the pandemic happened. And that's when I realized, oh, wait... 
like remote is a real skill and like people think that they've got it because they can use zoom now and they are on it for like eight hours a day. And I was just like, I could not handle being on these zoom calls all the time, but I was also having a hard time describing what it's like to work in a company that is primarily remote and when it's done really well, because it's this world that nobody had ever tried or really been in because remote was so niche beforehand. And so Allie and I were like lamenting this. We were like, oh my gosh, finally, there's this big prototype on this thing that we've been hyping up for such a long time. But we're like, ah, people are not really taking advantage of it. And also people are imagining that remote during a pandemic is the same as remote at any time. And I was like, oh, like global pandemics don't happen very often. They are awful. And we really wanted to kind of clear the air. And so we were talking and I tend to want to be like very proactive. So, you know, I was complaining and stuff like that. And then I was like, why don't we just write a book about it? And so Ali was really good game for that. And so we started collaborating and thinking about what a book might look like. And so we have very complementary skill sets and it kind of manifest in this book. And it's essentially the handbook we wish we would have had to really understand and almost like a DIY guide of regardless of what your company's doing, regardless if like the higher ups are kind of flip-flopping between being in the office and not being in the office, whatever debate you're reading on LinkedIn, a new term like the great resignation always comes up. Who cares? That's important. Yes. But if you have a team of five people, if you're an individual contributor, if you're leading a team of 25 people, whatever it is, you can use a guide to make remote work work really well within your sphere of control. And so that's really what we wanted to accomplish with Remote Works. I'm just thrilled that you guys have written this guide. I think it's something that everybody should read, but especially if you care about people experience. Let's get into the book itself, and just from your guys' experience, what are the key factors that make remote work a sustainable model for a team? Yeah, I'm going to touch on three specific things here. And it's going to be, I think, surprising for listeners that they're not specific tools. They're not going to be specific things that you have to do or best practices Instead, they're mindset shifts that I think everybody needs to make to make remote work sustainable for their unique business model, for the unique personalities of their team and their unique situation. And so number one is just always lead with intentionality. For remote work to work well, you need to become a designer. You need to design what the work life balance is going to look like, what your workplace, place in quotations is going to look like how you're going to interact and engage with the work, your team, and the greater company at hand. You can't leave things up to chance or up to opportunity because that no longer happens. You're not going to bump into someone in the bathroom and be able to to discuss milestones of a project. You need to plan the project in advance, the milestones, as well as where the project gets communicated, how documentation is being stored related to that project. Every detail needs to be thought out. And I think that's why it's so scary for people and why there is resistance to this shift of remote work. It's not just about office or not office. It's about how do we work in a more intentional way and do our work with purpose. And I think that's something that will become the future of work always, regardless of what situation you are in. But in remote work, it is the number one thing you need to have. And then from there, the other two things happen more and more naturally, which is there has to be trust. So one of the most frustrating things that I have heard in my journey of remote work 
is, oh, if people aren't in the office, how do you know if they're working? And it's like, well, do you know how to define what done looks like for a certain project? Do you know what KPIs you're looking for? Do you know how to just let go your sphere of control and pass that responsibility on to someone that you hired for a reason? And if you didn't hire them for the right reason, you're going to find that out quickly. And on top of that, the only job where I didn't work when I was supposed to be working was a job where I was forced to sit in an office from the hours of 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And I spent a lot of time researching vacations I would go on when my PTO kicked in. When I work and I'm working remotely, I'm sitting down when I'm at my most focused, when I'm very excited to get my work done and I'm feeling passionate and encouraged to make a difference in the project that I'm working on. And I feel a responsibility to not let my peers down in my team. And so building trust happens when you let go as a manager and when you create frameworks around what expectations look like so that people know when they're failing or when they're living up to their responsibilities. And with that goes the third kind of factor that you need, which is autonomy. You have to respect that people are autonomous. We are adults in the workforce, a culture of patronizing, employees and really going back to that old school model. This is going to be a a fun one for all the people, people listening of like the carrot and the stick approach to motivation. It doesn't work. It's not cool. And so once you build those frameworks around what boundaries look like, how you define things at work, like what the definition of done is, what expectations you have from people, like an expected turnaround time for communication, and then you let go you can really have people become more autonomous and learn about when they do their best work, where they do their best work, and all of the things that make remote work really interesting and exciting and and great for people in lots of different life circumstances. I was thinking about, you know, if someone were to start somewhere, which of those three things would you have them focus on first? But they're all very intertwined, sort of leading with intention having trust, and then letting people be autonomous workers, they all kind of play off each other. Yeah. They all weave into each other. It creates this nice, like, symbiotic relationship. It does. One of the things that you kind of touched on that I agree with, too, is is it takes work. There is work that goes into making a remote team and a remote culture successful. And so you have to be kind of thoughtful about what those things are. And I think this is a great sort of place to start from a mindset perspective. So one of the things that I hear often, whether it's from clients or on LinkedIn or different places is, (laughs) yeah, you literally already know it's coming. Our culture has completely suffered now that we are remote. You just, you can't do culture remotely. I hear this all the time. How do you respond when you hear that sort of belief from people? That they're not being intentional about things would be my very flippant response. And then of course that doesn't work. And this is why I get in trouble sometimes, but genuinely you think about other aspects of what culture looks like and you aren't forced into a room to create that. So you think around the culture of sports fans, think about the culture that surrounds certain like cult classic movies and people who dress up and go to festivals because they want to look like their favorite cartoon character and they all know how to behave and how to interact and what the different colors symbolize. They have these rituals. They have these artifacts that represent a community, even if people have never met before. So culture exists in our society. 
Therefore, culture can exist in a company without being in the bounds of four walls. And I think it is just because people are misinterpreting what culture means and what it actually looks like for their company. They're not taking time to step back and define what it looks like. And so they result back to memories of culture being the foosball table in the lunchroom or their after work happy hours. That's not culture. That's socializing, like first and foremost. And so I, I like to remind people how they do culture remotely is by focusing on something that we like to call standard operating behaviors. What are the behavioral norms at this company informally and formally? How do people get their work done? What are the behaviors that become champions in the organization? How do we reward those people? And what are the behaviors that we don't want to reward? And how do we discourage people from doing that? All of those small details, that is what culture is all about. And that's where people don't spend, again, the work, the effort, it's hard to really think through what that looks like in their organization. Yeah, it's one of those things that's not tangible. You mentioned this rituals and artifacts piece. Can you give some examples of what that looks like? Yeah, definitely. So especially in a remote world, people have a hard time thinking about this. One ritual, for example, that I used in a past company was a employee-driven award every week. And so there would be an all-hands meeting and asynchronously throughout the week, people would nominate through a form what people were doing that went above and beyond or spoke to the cultural values of the organization. And on Fridays, we would have a ritual of, you know, reading them out. And then the winner from the last week would give the award to the person the next week. And to take it a step further, there was a period of time for like a year where someone was writing them in poems, like a haiku one week and a rhyme one week. And so the ritual then also became people would be really excited to attend this meeting live instead of reading the asynchronous recap because they wanted to be like hearing the poem and looking at people's faces live on Zoom to figure out who was like blushing and if they could figure out who the secret poet was. And that was like a really cool ritual that happened because of the formal ritual of the award. And then the informal ritual was the poem. And then an artifact, Tam, I don't know if you want to jump in, but I always think to like our Asana, the artifact of a template that we use that every week we see it pop up for us. And it's like a reminder to start our week and to sit down and focus on what our top priorities are. And the lingering artifact all week is this task we have in our project management tool. That's a really helpful. I think artifacts are one of the hardest things, at least for me, when I'm talking with companies and like, what are the artifacts of your culture? It's one of the hardest things I think to pull out and even harder when it's remote. With the artifacts, I often try to get people to think of it as almost like a museum of like what their team has done or what their organization has done. And I found that really incredible when I joined Automatic. So you can imagine our artifacts were on WordPress blogs because we created WordPress, right? But I went in there and all of a sudden I had evidence of everything that had happened in the company for the last 15 years, because it was all written down on blog posts. And I could even see records and archives of things that my previous team had done at Google in partnership with WordPress that I did not know when I was at Google. So there was something really fascinating to me about like feeling like I had this superpower where I could like go into a partnerships meeting and being like, oh, so five years ago, we did this. Four years ago, we did this. It looks like it was our contact, this person, but they've now moved on to this other company based on what I can see on LinkedIn. 
all of a sudden I had all this information that often disappears within an organization based on like when people move or notes not going anywhere or those four people that were in that meeting get pulled into something else. You know, like there's so much knowledge that just completely evaporates in an organization. And so when I think of artifacts, I think what is a way that somebody could come into your organization as almost like an anthropologist and be like, okay, cool. I can look around and see kind of like what the culture is like, what are the common vocabulary terms people use, how they document stuff. Do they ever use images or photos? Are they more of a written culture? I try to have people think more like, as Ali mentioned about culture, thinking about like sports or culture that you're a part of, like think of culture culture in other ways outside of an organization and how can you pull that in? I also like to recommend people think about internet culture because that is a digital form of culture that very much exists. If you go on Reddit, it looks very different than if you go on Instagram. And those are two very different cultures on the internet that are created by users. And in the same way, an organization will have those different flares. So we use Asana in a very specific way at our Asana. You know, we have different emojis. I'm like a unicorn. And so, you know, we have different colors that we use. And so you could see a little bit about our personalities based on looking in our Asana, which might be very different than how another team uses it. And that's when you know there's a culture. It should not look identical regardless of who you are and what part of an organization you're in. Well, and I think that piece about there is something that when someone is joining the organization and coming in new, those digital artifacts that exist give you such a peek behind the curtain. And that is actually a strength of remote work and documenting how things have been done, what things look like. It makes it easier for people to understand what they're walking into than if they're having to do that in an office where everything happens word, random conversations in the hallway. Exactly. So there are many things that I can easily relate to people in terms of getting remote culture right, making it really work for them. And one of the questions that I have honestly been a little hung up on and been like, I don't know. I have a client who is a digital creative agency and they are trying so hard to recreate that feeling that you get when you are inside a room together as a creative team brainstorming. And they have asked, how do we do that remote? And I'm like, you know, I'm not even sure. I mean, I I have some thoughts and some ideas, but I'd be curious with both of your experience, having worked at a variety of different companies, lots of different creatives, what have you seen that works that can sort of recreate that magic? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this because I get asked about it a lot. And I used to work at IDEA, which created kind of the concept of design thinking. So very much that kind of creative studio that you're talking about. First of all, I would say, even if you're a remote company, we still recommend in-person time. So if you want to use that for brainstorming and you want to have that really like high energy offsite or meetup and you do it once a year or twice a year or whatever that is, I think you can still integrate in-person time because there is something... You mentioned kind of a feeling, which is different than kind of the concrete way of getting work done. And that feeling of just being near people and feeding off their energy you know, that happens in person. That's kind of something that we naturally do. That being said, I think you can be very creative in a digital remote context. And I'll name a couple different things. First of all, Allie and I wrote our book completely 
remotely. So that is a very creative project. In our book, we try to use a really fun voice. We use a lot of examples. We're very playful. Allie added a ton of puns in. So it is a creative force. We try not to use much business jargon. We did not want it to sound like you're dad's book from the 80s, right? And so that's not the vibe that we were going for. So we feel like it, it was a creative piece of work, but Ali was over in France and I was over in Cambridge. And so that is an example of how you can do something digitally. I also like to remind people of think of people that are creatives who are I'm a pretty creative person. And so when I think of like my heroes that are artists, I think of like I don't know. I love Matisse, for example, which maybe is cliche, but I just like love his artwork. I love Barbara Kingsolver just won the Pulitzer recently for her new book, Demon Copperhead. And she's like one of my favorite authors. So when I think about those two people, they are incredibly creative, but a lot of that work was done individually. And to just remember that when you are in a big group, you can feel a lot of energy. You can kind of spitball off of each other, but it also can be ostracizing for people that are more introverted or need more time to think. And so when I recommend, if people are really trying to create a creative environment that's digital, do it in stages. So one thing I really recommend is like having people go on field trips. So let's imagine you are a UX UI designer, which is kind of a more naturally creative field, and you are changing all the colors of your branding. I would recommend, okay, before we even meet on Zoom and we do this spitball approach, why don't we all spend half a day, get off your laptop, and just go somewhere that you find visually beautiful and take pictures of colors. And so if you have somebody that's based in Utah, you're probably going to get a lot of reds and orange and blue sky, and it's going to be lovely. In Cambridge, I would probably go, there's this like lovely old private libraries, like the oldest one in the US is George Washington's encyclopedias, I would probably go there to the Athenaeum and I would take pictures and it would be kind of like a lot of the 1700s New England. And so you'd have a lot of old books and statues and textiles. And my colors would look very different than that natural Utah colors. And we would come in with like really excited things to share. And so that's a way that I think you can really empower people remotely to like take advantage of all this location that we have. And then when you get together, I say, find a way that you can facilitate some type of design thinking format. And usually you go wide before you go narrow. And by wide, you bring in a lot of ideas. So before you're trying to shut people down and say, no, we need a direction, we need to move forward. Just like let people have ideas. You can use something like Mural. I used to use Figma a lot when I was at IDEO. Have people place it there. You can use a Google Doc, something simple. And then from there, as you get people to have ideas, come back the next day after people have had some time to think about it. Like there's a lot of creativity that goes on in the back of our heads and like the unconscious. I'm a big Jungian fan. And so see what your dreams say. See what comes up on a walk or in a shower And then the next day you can come in and you can start synthesizing. And that's when you're grouping ideas and you can come back in and be like, okay, so it looks like we're really into this like blue color, but you know, we could kind of complement it with this or this, like come in and start trying to like collect people's thoughts and group it together so you can move forward. And I always recommend prototype before you finalize something, even with things like remote working before saying like, this is the way we're going to all do it. This is exactly how we have to do it. We have to have it approved by the president of our company to be able to do this. 
just try something small. Be like, okay, we're tired of all these Zoom meetings. Let's just try to make our daily stand-up async for this week. Let's just try it out and see what happens. And so I always recommend just try to be experimental and use that capacity that we all innately have to be creative and bring that into the virtual room or in the physical room if you're meeting up in person. So those are some things I recommend. I also like there is a lot of group think and group bias that happens in boardrooms. So when there is a lot of nostalgia around that, I think also remember that there is a hippo thing, like the highest paid person's opinion ends up mattering the most, and it can ostracize different types of personalities. So I'm a Myers-Briggs fan, which actually initially comes from a lot of Jungian thought, but I am an INFP, which is not super conducive to very competitive work environments, which is where I grew up professionally. And I always felt like I had a hard time getting across a lot of my thoughts and opinions in a room where people were very, very competitive. And so I feel like I'm able to be a lot more creative remotely because it gives me time to think and process and also pull from inspiration around me. I am so excited to bring this back specifically to the client that asked me this question, but I think there was a lot there that people can sort of reflect on and take away small experiments. Absolutely. I love that. And the idea of the field trip and that people could take field trips in their own areas, wherever they are, before they get together on that Zoom call. What a cool way for people to get back in touch with their environments and get a little more creative because we get so caught up in being in our offices and kind of getting into momentum in certain ways that I think that's a really, really insightful thought for teams who are looking to mix things up a little bit. So thank you. Can I add one little thing to that, Jill? Do you mind? When we were interviewing people, I thought this was also really nice is for like user, especially people that are in tech companies, for user research, there are remote companies that'll give you a stipend just to take out a friend or a creative person or a potential user of your product in your city. And then just have like a casual conversation with how they use it. Because what I noticed, even at like really cool creative companies, I was at Google, awesome environment, obviously, great food, cool offices, etc. But we became very insular as an organization of like Googlers talk to Googlers. We live in corporate cities, Silicon Valley, you talk to other people in Silicon Valley. And I felt like we were living so much in the echo chamber. That's You get a lot of ideas from people that are in your industry, but I always felt we were missing out a little on... You know, what are my parents thinking in McKinney, Texas? They're, you know, 71, 75 years old. They live in a suburb. Like, what do they want? That's going to be different than kind of the millennial hipster in San Francisco. And I feel like when you have people that are distributed in different locations, have different ways of thinking, ways of living, you get a more unique perspective of who your users could be versus people that look just like you and your colleagues that were all hired by the same recruiter. It is so easy to get insular. So that completely resonates and I think is another great point about kind of getting out of the bubble. Being a great manager is hard. Like really hard. I used to preach that it was every company's duty to provide management training for their entire team. But then I became a director of people and culture for a SaaS startup and realized just what kind of barriers were in the way. Design the training in-house? I could never find the time. 
hire a third party to come and teach it? Sure, but then I'd need to re-engage them every time a new manager joined, and I just didn't have the budget for that kind of long-term engagement. In my head, I envisioned the startup version of management training, a self-led reusable program that consisted of audio lessons, thoughtful exercises, helpful templates, and an internal facilitation plan for cohort-style learning. So I built it. And it quickly became apparent that I wasn't the only person looking for a more cost-effective, scalable solution. If you also fall into that camp and want to learn more, you can visit wanttoworkthere.com backslash management training. That's wanttoworkthere.com backslash management training. All right, let's get back to the show. All right. So I have been hearing a lot lately, and I'm assuming you have as well, in probably the last six months, I'd say, about definitely a return to office, but most specifically that most companies are sort of experimenting with and either using or thinking about the hybrid model. I have my own strong opinions on what works when you're in a hybrid situation. Strongly opinions loosely held, let's say that, because there is so much I think we still have to learn about doing hybrid work well. But I am curious from the two of you, how do you feel about organizations shifting to hybrid work being the remote advocates that you are? Strong opinion loosely held is a very good descriptor of my journey the past couple of years as it relates to this topic. So wearing my strong opinion hat, for me personally, hybrid work would never work for me. I'm a digital nomad. I travel the world. Um, When I'm not traveling, I'm not usually based in my country of origin. I'm nowhere near anything that resembles an office at the moment. And it just personally does not match the goals that I have for my holistic life. Taking my personal preference aside, I also think that the challenge with hybrid work is that you're really limiting yourself on accepting the challenges of a fully distributed company without a lot of benefits. So we just spent a lot of time talking about, look at all these really great benefits you get when people are distributed in different regions around a country or around the world in terms of creative thinking, in terms of how it helps with brainstorming, giving new perspectives on a product. but Also, increasing your hiring pool and your applicant pool of people that are going to be the right fit for the role, not necessarily the best candidate, but the person who who gets it in all of the skills, attributes, and desires necessary. What does that look like? Complete global coverage in terms of time zones. The diversity and inclusion aspect of hiring people that sometimes couldn't even be part of the knowledge workforce if it was not for a fully remote company. People that for whatever reason, physical, mental, emotional, for themselves, for people that they're caretakers of, just aren't able to work in an office environment now have such incredible opportunities available to them. For me, there's so many human benefits that are imperative to being part of a fully distributed company. However, I will say that I'm softening to this approach because I do realize that there are still companies out there who don't have desires of necessarily being a fully global distributed company. They don't necessarily want to expand beyond their niche. And 
potentially a lot of their current employees are missing the environment of an office. And while I would push back that they haven't tried to implement remote work well before they make this decision, it is a decision that is being made for some companies in an incredibly intentional way. And for those companies, I respect that it's not for me, but maybe it's for you. And I've heard, you know, a good amount of people exclaim why they want to work in that type of environment. And for me at this stage, I would say, as long as you can sit back and decide if I were going to start a business today, would I want to incorporate an office environment into my business strategy? And if so, why? How would I use that space intentionally? What would the purpose of it be? And what would my expectations be around it? If leaders and companies are thinking about their hybrid strategy with that level of intentionality, going back to your first question, then I could say, hey, it would work for you. You're leaving all these benefits on the table, but like respect. Unfortunately, I think at this stage, a lot of companies aren't thinking about it that way. It's becoming a compromise, whether it's a compromise between them and the board, a compromise between them and real estate, a compromise between their desires and employee desires and this us versus them mentality. There's so many negative things going on that I would say at the end of the day, it's not about where you're doing your work. It's about the office being a tool and is your company using that tool in the most effective way? If yes, cool. I applaud you. I don't want to work there, (laughs) but maybe somebody does. And like, that's awesome. And so that's where my strong opinion has loosened over time. Yeah. I feel that so, so very much. And even, you know, in my last company, I remember people saying, you know, we really want an office. Like I have kids at home. I don't want to be here during the day. I can't get work done in the way that I want to because it's just not a great environment for me to be in, to focus. And I remember honestly shifting for the first time and thinking, yeah, there is different perspectives on why someone may want to be in an office. And obviously a lot of different ways to tackle that, you know, being in office is not the only way to tackle that. But I think what you're saying is is very true. It's all goes back to the intentionality. At the end of the day, why are we making this decision? And I will say, I think it's going to be interesting. I just did an interview a couple of weeks ago with a woman who interviewed a thousand Gen Zers about what it is that they want out of work. And the shock that absolutely blew my mind, and granted, this was a, you know, a small port of the population, thousand people. only 4% wanted to work fully remote. I literally fell off my chair when I heard that because I was like, wow, it's so different. And, you know, we had a long conversation about the fact that people who are just joining the workforce feel like they're missing out on some of the traditional rituals, mentorship, things that existed like that, and a chance for them to meet, quote unquote, work friends. So it's a very interesting dialogue, I think, that's going to continue to happen around what are the needs of the different generations, whether it's a caretaker, whether it is someone who is wanting to be fully digitally remote, whether it is someone who's new to the workforce and really wishes there was an office. Have you come across this Gen Z perspective? 
I haven't talked to a thousand Gen Zers. I want to. This topic I'm like so interested and passionate about because I initially, like, I think you saw me like jumping in my chair. Um, for those of you who are just listening audibly, I was jumping in my chair because I feel that there's so many deeper things to that discussion. And so it's like, okay, Gen Zers, their first experience remote was during the pandemic. Tam explained all about why that's terrible and why most companies sucked at it. And that's an awful first experience to have. Of course, they don't want that. But have they opened their eyes up to the remote work experience that Tam and I had when both of us were in Cape Town, South Africa, and we met each other and work together from two different companies so much so that we became friends and now we own a business together. And so you talk about mentorship opportunities, you talk about socializing, you talk about learning from others. And there are are creative ways to do that, that this group of people have not been exposed to. And what they do know is what they see on old movies, what they've heard from other people, what they expect to be like a traditional like passing the torch in normal life stages. Like you go to college, you get an apartment, you get a job and go to the office. Like maybe one day you get married and like those traditional life stages, like it's okay to question them and decide what you want. Do you want mentorship? The best way to find a mentor is who is the person you respect the most in the world that's doing what you want to do. Like they probably don't work for your same company, but they probably are on LinkedIn. Just message them. You want socialization and you want to learn and be around creative people. Who excites you the most? Where inspires you the most? Just go there and get your work done and be there. There's so many ways to change the question. And to me, that's really frustrating. And I just want people to ask themselves the right questions, not just focus on this choice of office or remote. And that's the choices I have in my life. And I will now get off my pedestal of this rant. But if you're a Gen Zer out there that wants to talk to me about it, come find me. <laughs> I have a very well-worn soapbox. So I understand completely. <laughs> and I love your passion. And I think asking the right questions. Doesn't so much of life just come down to that? Like asking the right questions. I love that. Tam, did you have anything you wanted to add about Gen Z and their thoughts maybe on remote work? So I think we're in this weird transition right now of for the last 50 years, so much of our social life has come from work because work consumed everything. We had to move places for work. We were with colleagues all the time. Like that was kind of the way that we socialized. Everything was hinged on work. But now that work is becoming more distributed, we haven't really filled in the spaces of how do you socialize outside of coworkers specifically for a certain like set of people and a certain set of jobs. And so I think we're in a weird transition. One of my favorite books is, Ali's definitely heard me mention this a lot. It's Robert Putnam, Bowling Alone. He wrote it like 20 or 30 years ago, but he was already seeing the idea that we were, by bowling alone, it means not being in a bowling league anymore, that a lot of kind of civic and community activities had gone away. And a lot of corporations were starting to own culture. Like all of a sudden, like you make your friends through work, you do all your activities through work. Like all of my socialization was through Google for six or seven years. Like every single thing was owned by the organization. And there's something really nice about that, but it also kind of reduced my capacity 
to make friends outside of work or to get involved with like really important like nonprofits or organizations and all those things or like meeting people that were not in technology. And so, you know, there are pros and cons of it. And I think that's something I like to remind people of. And I'm really interested in what does it look like when we can get back invested in our local communities I am a part of a lot of like fun stuff here in Cambridge that I would not be able to do if I was not a remote worker. This afternoon, I'm leading a Jungian dream group, for example. I regularly volunteer for Food for Free, which is a meal service across Cambridge. And it usually happens three to five in the afternoon on Wednesdays. I would not be able to do that with a kind of a normal job that I was going in person for. Well, I love this rabbit hole and (laughs) it's one I go down often as well because (laughs) I do think. There's a lot of things that are shifting, and one of them is this ability to really form meaningful community outside of work. And I think we're going to see a lot of shifts in that in the next five, 10 years. Okay, I'm going to take us back. You know, we're talking about this concept, and thank you because you guys have added so much color to sort of this discussion around, you know, if we go hybrid versus fully remote, what does that look like, and how do we do it, and why are we doing it? What is the general reason behind it? My personal core belief is that if a company is going to be hybrid, they need to be set up remote first. So they should be building all of their rituals, communication, their structures, everything should be remote focused. And then if there is an office, it's almost like this plus, like going into the office is another way to socialize and be in a space where you could potentially do some great work, but it is not required in order to do great work for the company. And I think the only way you can do that is if you're set up fully remote. But as you think about this and sort of this transition, what are the best practices of remote work that you think need to be championed by hybrid teams? I love how you put that because that's exactly the answer we would have given. If you just have one person that's remote, you need to start thinking about your organization being remote first. It's just like good digital skills to have. You archive better, you communicate where everybody can see it, things are not evaporating. It's just like good best practices in a world where so much is mediated by technology. I always try to make people think of it more as an inclusivity concept. And so you should not be treating remote workers as second-class citizens. Would you do that to any other protected class within your organization? Would you say, actually, we're going to just have women not be a part of certain things because they're remote? Sorry, not remote, but you get what I'm saying. Like, you would never have an organization and say, like, everybody that's under 30 is not allowed to do these things. They cannot be a part of these conversations. We're going to make sure that it's really hard for them to see certain things. So you just would not do that for parts of your organization. You want all people to be able to have the same access to do really good work. And so I think the same thing as a remote worker, just because somebody is in a different place does not mean that they should be treated differently and not be able to do their work as well as they possibly can. And I find like when you do do that, it's actually a form of discrimination. So a lot of people are like, well, what about FaceTime and proximity and da da da? But I would say that's actually a bias. If the way that you're judging if somebody's doing good work is based on seeing their face and if you like them, then that actually like goes to a lot of other issues, sort of unconscious bias. And so I like to think about that. I get like really fired up about that idea. And also I get fired up about, we ask a lot of people 
to transplant for an organization. I was talking to a friend recently. He has a family in Atlanta with a partner. He's lived there for 20 years. He just got a job with a company. He went for interviews for like one day. He meets these people and they said, okay, well, you can be partially remote for the first six months, but you need to come for five days a week. You need to rent your own apartment. And then you have to move everything to Washington, D.C. afterwards. And I just feel like that's a huge bet and a huge gamble for somebody you've only met for like one day, especially in this world where we're seeing layoffs and these companies that said they were families, all of a sudden when like push comes to shove, they're totally okay with getting rid of everybody and acting just like a corporation. And so, yeah, I think about that with like inclusivity and like making sure that all people can like have access to those jobs. Cause it can be really hard for somebody to say like, to have this job, you have to be in person. Therefore you need to uproot everybody that is around you in your life. There's a whole thing about like the trailing spouse or like the two body problem of like somebody gets a job and then the other person has to follow them if they're in a partnership together. And that usually actually means that the person that makes more money is the one that they go after the job and that they have to move. And that can be a huge issue for like equality and relationships. So I think there's all these things that are really, really important if we want to see a society where people have more equity and more opportunity. So, but Ali, go into more practical things because now I'm stepping off the soapbox and putting it right here, but I think it actually like leads up to so many important issues that are coming out in our society right now. Yeah, I think, again, like this is a topic that could spin into a whole nother episode. We just are full of these tangents of passion that show why remote work is so important. But for those leaders looking for tactical definitions or understanding of what remote first and hybrid even means, the easiest way I would boil it down for them are access to information. As you said, are things stored in a way where regardless of where you're located, you can have answers to questions quickly using software or hardware that you have access to online? Is there communication protocols to make sure that important conversations, even if they do accidentally happen in person, are documented in a place where everyone can transparently read them and have an opportunity to chime in before a decision is made? And are things like internal processes, hiring decisions, promotion decisions based off of work that can be seen virtually, not just things that happen in an office place. And if you only focus on those three things, you're off to a good start. There's so many more things you can read about them in our book, but those things will automatically like start helping you head in the right direction. Those three are spot on. And I will just say, I am a fangirl of this book. You guys can't see. We're obviously in audio. I have like paper clips. All It's highlighted. Like there is so much practical, actionable goodness in this book. So if any part of this conversation has started to get your brain working on how do we actually do this? What does it look like in the day-to-day? I can not recommend picking up this book more. My personal recommendation, I think this book is best in hard copy because there's so many things that you're going to want to go back and look at and highlight and play around with. But before we wrap up, I would love to hear, like I said, there are so many tools, templates, different pieces of advice that you give in the book Do you both have a favorite? What's your sort of favorite tool or template to share with people around remote work? So many, so many favorites, but one that just like makes me really excited is 
we have something called energy tracking and it's in our chapter about getting things done. And on the theme of questioning everything, I hate time management and productivity and people thinking that there's like a very rigid approach to that. And one of the things that remote work unlocks is how you can manage your energy to work in your peak performance hours. And you probably don't know that about yourself because you've been forced to get your best work done from nine to five. And so when you're trying to escape nine to five, our energy tracker helps you learn about yourself and when you do your best work. And I think that's really innovative and fun and cool. And and part of our goals in writing this book is to challenge people to do things differently. And I would say one of my favorites is the user guide. So let's imagine I recently got a bread maker and I make bread all the time now. It's great. My apartment smells like fresh bread. I totally recommend it. But when I got the bread maker, it came with a user guide and a manual of like, how does one make bread with all these different buttons? And there's 19 options and I can make all these different types of things, right? And so in the same way, you know, when you're not in person and like being able to see somebody eight hours every day and kind of like notice all these like little things about their behavior, some of that is hidden. And so one huge thing in remote work is to make as much possible transparent and obvious and visual. And so we really recommend coming up with like, what is a one pager of like, what's the best way to work with me? Like, what's my experience? What do I like to do? When do I like to work? Where do I live? Like what matters to me? How do I like to get feedback? What is the skill that I'm trying to build? What is the one thing I really hate doing? What's my biggest pet peeve? Like being able to understand that really quickly with your team members, but also for a manager to understand that means you can really tailor how you're managing to the individual person. And also just not assuming that people are a certain way. I just know I've gotten reviews where like people have told me like certain strengths that they're like, you're so good at this. And it's like the thing I absolutely hate doing. And that can be like a really weird double bind that you're in where you're like, great. So now they think I'm really good at something that I really hate doing. And I don't know what to do with this feedback. So do I do continue to work in this way I don't like to work and things of that sort. And so by putting all this in a user guide, you can set up these kind of like norms of like people actually be able to see each other more concretely for like how they want to work. So that would be my recommendation. And you can just have it on file as an artifact that as people join teams, they can see that you can update it over time. You could add fun stuff. Like I love a personality test. I love an Enneagram. You could add that stuff. You can make it really silly. Like we have like, what's your superpower? But if you have those things, it's going to make it a lot easier for people to kind of plug and play and start working together well without all that confusion of like, oh, huh, why are they doing that? Like that's annoying, et cetera. And you might be able to understand that a lot quicker. I built a modern management training program when I came out of my last head of people role because I felt like, well, we won't go down the rabbit hole of why I did that. But one of the things that is in there is we call it a readme, but a user guide. And I just got done facilitating with two different teams and we were sort of asking the question, what did you take away from this? And those readme user guides, people get to know team members they've been working with sometimes for years. So much better after they have done that simple activity. It is just such a gift when teams do it. So I love that you use that. And I myself need the energy management activity. So it's actually one of the ones I have highlighted to do. Tam, Ali, thank you so much. I am grateful that we got to have this time together. Remote work is sometimes hard to get right because it takes intentionality and people don't know what the step is. They want a roadmap 
And I think what you've written is that roadmap. So I'm so grateful that you wrote it. I'm so glad we got to chat. If you have not already been persuaded by my sales pitch to go buy the book, everybody, we will definitely put some additional resources in the show notes as well. So you can start there. But thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thank you. This show was brought to you by wanttoworkthere.com and the incredible team at Podcasting for Creatives. No individual or company acting alone can change our societal beliefs about work, but together we can create a new normal. If you like this episode, please consider passing it on to one or two people who share your passion for creating a better world of work. And until next time, please know I see you, I believe in you, and keep going. The work you're doing really matters.